0: I have this uh, running joke in the office that the, the best way to raise money is to tell people you're not taking money. It, it works, right? Like when when you are aggressively fundraising, and there's a, a certain FOMO aspect to a manager where you know that they're going to be oversubscribed, and you know you may not get capacity. There's power in that. As an LP, these types of conversations sometimes are easy. But sometimes they're not, right? You want to understand, hey, you know, give me an example of something that didn't work out, or or, or a losing trade. And, and you want to understand, you know, kind of a post mortem perspective, you know, what they did wrong, what they learned from, maybe more importantly than the money lost is you want to understand the thought process. You want to understand what they did then and potentially how they would do something differently. Because one thing that's been drilled into me for the last, you know, 20 years is that past performance is not indicative of future results. And while that's true, it, it does de-risk the investment.
1: Neil Dada, Managing Director, at Optima Asset Management. You've had a very unique background ranging from working on the public sector, tracking down financial crimes to today, working as part of the team that managed the private fortune of the late queen Elizabeth II. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast. Thanks for having me. So tell me how you went through this diverse background of working in the public sector to managing the wealth of some of the most important people on the planet.
0: Yeah, so I've been an institutional investor for fifteen years. I've been lucky enough to work with some of the smartest, uh, most impressive, best performing investment managers in the world. Really, my my team is responsible for sourcing investment opportunities for the folks we manage capital for. As you noticed, uh, it's a, a high profile, impressive group, so that keeps us on our toes. And really my job is to uh, diligence opportunities and uh, de-risk them as much as possible such that they, they fit into our mandate and they have appropriate kind of controls in place and uh, have kind of all the uh, uh, institutional best practice that we expect from our managers. You're head of risk and operational
1: due diligence at Optima. Tell me what you do on a daily basis and explain the alpha or potentially the, the loss aversion that you're able to capture by doing the right diligence and doing the right risk assessment on your investments, my job is to
0: vet every opportunity that comes through our door. We apply kind of a rigorous review that that, that includes, you know, document review, on-site meetings, speaking to both the investment team as well as the operational team. You know, we kind of take the view that it's almost like a mini SAS70 assessment, um, and I think that gives us good holistic view of not just the investment opportunity but the management company as a business. Because we we typically make long term investments, um, so it's really important to us that the management company is is well situated and in a in a position to continue to provide alpha for us as LPs.
1: And when you say you're looking at it not just as a
0: fund as a management company, what do you mean by that? We assess not just their 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 investment strategy, but the folks that are running the business, what software they use, um, what their investment process is like. You know, we have the benefit of of seeing most. Um, well-known institutional investors. So we kind of from our seat, we could see what's best in class, what folks are are doing in terms of process, in terms of software, in terms of, you know, folks that are on the team. And it, it's like thinking about alpha, it's super unique because we're in the position to add alpha as LPs. This is something that I, I do often and really enjoy because usually it's emerging and startup managers who, you know, are looking to bring in institutional capital. And we're just kind of curious what we look for, what type of systems do we prefer, what type of reporting do we prefer? And from that perspective, we're able to kind of bring them up the curve and make them kind of more appropriate for institutional allocation and it, it becomes kind of a win-win uh, from an investment standpoint to 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 be able to add value and and generally these managers appreciate it, so it tends to build some goodwill and, and allow us to be long-term partners with these folks. One thing uh, in
1: 2011, between my first and second year in business school, I interned at a hedge fund of sorts and, and I got to meet with a lot of emerging, these hedge fund hotels. one of the things that really stuck to me is that if you wanna be a $500 million, billion dollar hedge fund, you have to start working and acting as if you're that level at the early stage. So really it's it's kind of a chicken egg, uh, but the way you solve that chicken egg is by starting to act institutionally early on. You know, We get criticized, uh, me and Eric, that we only bring on very, very bullish VC people. You're our first kind of VC skeptic. What makes you
0: skeptical about venture capital today? I, I am bullish on venture as an asset class and, and generally as an opportunity set. I think as an investor that looks at both public and private markets, and you alluded to this uh, just now, that the observation that I've seen personally is that it's gotten much easier to launch a venture fund over the last few years. At the same time, it's gotten much harder, much more expensive to launch a public equity fund, regulation, compliance requirements, reporting. The byproduct of that is that there are a lot of recent entrants into venture who may not necessarily be in the best position to generate alpha. Our job is to really uh, handicap those opportunities and kind of put us in the best position and take kind of the, the the best horses in the race to to build portfolios for our clients
1: before we went live. you mentioned in passing that some venture funds with a billion dollars under assets have worse infrastructure than some much smaller
0: hedge funds. What did you mean by that? Venture capital, unlike hedge funds you know it, it's it's an illiquid asset class, right so and when you're thinking about public market investing hedge funds and mutual funds, there's generally some some goalposts that managers have to pass things like audits and you know, regulatory reviews, you know, investor diligence sessions. Sometimes you find that venture capital managers, particularly those with size, have gotten to a certain size of AUM and haven't had to go through those growing pains. And a lot of times they're kind of doing some of this you know, uh, stuff that early stage hedge funds had to do a while ago. And I think that's part of the diligence conversation. And that's why diligence is, is so important. I think it's really interesting, like if you think about the decade between kind of the great financial crisis and the pandemic, by any metric you choose, whether it's number of deals, size of rounds, new funds launched, venture capital has, has exploded. And social media has given these folks reach that was previously impossible. But I think that definitely created some, some FOMO. And folks in my position, that's something we have to deal with and really separate you know, the, the, the hype from what's real. So yes, I mean I've seen cases of large AUM VC shops that don't produce independent Navs that have really kind of suspicious expense policies, um, obvious conflicts of interest, uh, or just maybe aren't comfortable being being scrutinized. Um, and that, quite honestly, is something that's super rare when it comes to public market investing. So maybe stemming from the fact that having a redemption window kind of forces you to to be on the right side of best practice. That's where. Diligence comes in, and and that's how you separate the the institutional, you know, well managed shops from the folks that maybe had a win early on and and are are resting their laurels. That's an interesting point. The ten
1: year fund period in VC leads to different incentives than hedge fund, where you typically have a gate in a year and you could reconsider. It also makes it easier to start to gather the first check into hedge fund or to get somebody to commit for the first time, but harder to retain them. So there's there's definitely some some, some trade offs there. When you do, quote unquote, institutional diligence uh, on VCs, what are you looking for? It's not
0: that different. What we look for many investment manager. We look for an edge. We look for the ability to generate alpha that is somewhat repeatable. We look for institutional infrastructure that is commensurate with best practice. And to be clear, that means different things for different strategies. You know, there's a certain expectation we have for a billion dollar equity manager versus a venture capital manager and you know coming from our seat from seeing you know all sizes and iterations of these managers over you know kind of the 30 year history of Optima we're kind of in the best position to diligence these opportunities we could say with authority hey you know you're doing this maybe you should do this a little bit differently or or maybe have you thought about this in terms of uh, research process or you know like the, going back to our, our earlier point you know investors appreciate that we are LPs that I can add value. If you view these as partnerships, then it ends up being a win-win for both parties. We interviewed the co-founder of Tribe, Jonathan Sue, and
1: for every portfolio company, they provide a report. And even though they end up passing on the majority, a large majority of companies, they're able to produce something of value. I think there's a positive selection there The people that want the feedback and that embrace it are gonna be the ones that are at the top, both entrepreneurs as well as fund managers. Despite your criticism of the not enough diligence in the venture space, you still are in some of the most storied franchises in venture capital. What made you want to invest into these, these venture funds?
0: I think it's really easy to forget that venture capital is an asset class where the asset itself has to approve every investor personally. You know, if I want to buy Tesla, uh, I got 300 bucks in a brokerage account. There's not much Elon can do to, to stop that from happening. And that kind of aspect to it is a powerful motivating factor from a founder's perspective. You know, big name managers, Sandhold Road firms, tend to have institutional LPs, they tend to have corporate relationships, they may have investors that are, you know, CEOs of 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 former portfolio companies. That aspect of access and flywheel that is is really important in venture. It's really tough for emerging startup managers to replicate that. From like, the deal flow perspective, when I speak to smaller managers, they tend to focus on value add. They effectively are proving to us why someone takes their money. But you know, when when you're one of the big guys on Hill Road, they don't need to have that conversation, right? Like, like that, that ship's already sailed to a certain extent. So for us, we need to understand, hey, you know, which particular investment is gonna, you know, add the most value for us. And, you know, somebody like myself, I don't need to focus on business risk. I don't need to focus on going concern risk. I don't need to worry about whether or not they can pay their employees or keep the lights on and, you know, be in a position to be in business for, you know, fund five and fund 10. So it does like de-risk the investment for us to a certain extent. But I also, I think there's, there's definitely alpha there to, to be one of the bigger players in the space.
1: I was speaking to Beezer Clarkson from Sapphire off podcast in real life that happens once in a while. And she mentioned that there's different strategies, different ways to to go after venture. You could, of course, wait until an emerging manager goes to fund four and there's only about a dozen or so of those kind of funds, or you could try to whittle through those thousands of funds early on. Her argument was that you're gonna be highly adversely selected if you wait for the emerged funds and that by fund four, fund five, you already have the the top managers. And of course you have these large, you know, bank platforms which remain unnamed that are, are putting people into KKR Fund 15. Obviously, that's another extreme as well. How do you look at that? Where's the alpha from in terms of a vintage and a stage that you want
0: to go into venture capital? This logic applies to any manager. There's this, you know, kind of human nature conversation of, you know, would you rather invest with somebody who's kind of young and hungry and hasn't made it? Or would you rather invest with somebody who's a little bit older, who's got more resources? and potentially has had some wins under their belts. I think both have utility. I tend to think that the younger, hungrier, more emerging folks have the strongest incentives to make it work because they haven't had their big win yet. But I think that also potentially leads to suboptimal risk management. But at the same time, to the, the, the point earlier, there's this flywheel effect that you get with kind of the storied franchises yeah, it reminds
1: me, there was a study that found that the the best founders were actually serial entrepreneur founders that had not succeeded in the first one. The one that had succeeded in the first one actually were not as hungry. So a little bit of experience, but a little bit of hunger seems to be the right combination. You have different clients with different risk return profiles, but if you look at a, a generic client, let's say the average client, let's just for simplicity's sake, let's say you're managing money for an endowment what would be your your allocation across all asset classes what would be some of the rules of thumb in terms of what you would want your portfolio to look like
0: as you'll appreciate that the conversation is is really different based upon the kind of risk return guidelines and and liquidity requirements for each investor but thinking from like a long-term perspective i think what we do is we we typically build portfolios that are diverse and have exposure to the areas that we think are are you know not just kind of performing well today, but set to perform well five to ten years out. So we think of areas like technology, healthcare, obviously mixing both public and private. But you know focusing on on liquidity from an asset class perspective, it would be a mix of both kind of uh, traditional mutual funds, but also alternatives. We tend to have a kind of a strong bias towards alternatives kind of given our, our history and, and DNA as a firm, usually that's going to be in the form of a mix of hedge funds, private venture, and more traditional asset classes like fixed income and public equity.
1: What does venture capital as an asset class
0: compete against? What is its nearest comparable? I would put venture in the alts bucket. The challenge in kind of wealth management universe is that, you know, typically that sleeve, maybe 10% or less, so you're competing against hedge funds and and CTAs and private equity for a piece of the pie, which is significantly smaller than what they do for fixed income. That model may not be the best way to, to look at it. I mean, that model really relies on kind of the old school 60-40 asset allocation model, which we, we, we generally don't believe in. One thing that I'm a proponent of is that diversification protects wealth where concentration builds wealth you know that's kind of a view that we've had for a long time and we've had the benefit you know uh, an optima of allocating for best performing equity managers over the last 30 years and we've done a lot of analysis around this and it's really interesting when you kind of back out their performance and you look at kind of the factors that drive it and a lot of times you find that the highest conviction names at a manager are typically the you know number 1 number 2 the top 5 positions and usually, you know, if you using kind of hindsight as as a proxy, um, you find that the highest conviction names tend to perform better than the actual performance of the portfolio. So, so it kind of you know solidifies what our thinking is that you want to do your homework, but you want to make concentrated bets with specialists to be in a position to best monetize macro events whether they're in a specific sector or specific asset class
2: hey we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors the limited partner podcast is proudly sponsored by angelist if you're a founder or investor you'll know Angelist builds software that powers the startup economy Angelist has recently rolled out a suite of new software products for venture capital and private equity that are truly game-changing they digitize and automate all the manual processes that you struggle with in traditional fundraising and operating workflows, while providing real-time insights for funds at any stage, connecting seamlessly with any back office provider. If you're in private markets, you'll love AngelList's new suite of software products. And for private companies, thousands of startups from 4 million to 4 billion in valuation have switched to Angelist for cap table management. It's a modern, intelligent equity management platform that offers equity issuance, employee stock management. 409A valuations, and more. I've been a happy investor in AngelList for many years, and I'm so excited to have them as a presenting sponsor. So if you're ready to level up your startup or fund with AngelList, visit www.angelist.com slash TLP. That's Angelist slash TLP to get started. Back to the show.
1: Yeah, we found that to be the case. Uh, check size is the highest predictor of, of conviction, which is the highest predictor of return. And I think there's a misnomer in venture capital in general that everybody's spraying and praying, no one knows who's going to be good. I, I think it's very clear. If you look at some of the most competitive rounds in history, it was Google Series A and Facebook Seed Round. That is not a coincidence. It's statistically one in a million chance that that would just happen to be a random. You mentioned diversification. What are ways to quantify diversification? What is a diversified portfolio? What is a not diversified portfolio?
0: So I guess looking at equity land, typically, what we would think of kind of a diversified portfolio would be, you know, call it 30 or less positions. Think of it as, you know, the kind of the top five positions are 30-ish percent or 20-ish percent of the portfolio. And In terms of equity funds, that's fairly concentrated. You know, when you think of Venture—that's a little bit of a, a different conversation. But one thing I find as as an LP is that a lot of venture managers don't think about portfolio construction or macro in a kind of a thoughtful way. And that's that's something that you know we think about as global investors. You know, so it's really our job to kind of put a macro overlay and and make sure our clients have a, a appropriate exposure from a liquidity perspective. It's one difficult thing to handicap
1: in terms of correlation uh that's always been kind of the uncorrelated asset that's been the golden grail and then we saw in the last market cycle somehow crypto is totally correlated with growth stocks which is correlated with with anything risk riskiness how do you look at correlation
0: and diversification moving forward from the learnings from the last crisis and from a risk perspective we we look at correlation both correlation to you know benchmarks correlation to indices correlation to kind of their peers that's something we 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 look at quite closely and also diversification from you know a liquidity standpoint in terms of you know an asset liability mismatch but also from a you know top down perspective right and you know from a correlation perspective you know if i have a portfolio that has 20 positions and two of those positions have you know greater than eighty five percent correlation to each other. I got to ask myself, do I need both of them? <laughs> and it, you know, like I would prefer to have less relationships and have better relationships than have a bunch of repetitive allocations where managers are providing me kind of similar or or like exposure. So so really, I think from an LP's perspective, our job is to you know make sure we have kind of the the best horses in the race, but also you know. Be in a position where we can, you know, you could have a buy list, but not allocate to everyone, right? So you, you got to have a kind of a good roster of folks that are on your bench, where, you know, there may be opportunities, like whether it's a macro opportunity or a specific geo or sector, where you believe in it, but you just don't believe in it right now. Um, and I think it's it's important for, for us to, to, to have a really kind of deep bench of next up managers that may not make sense now would, would make sense when kind of the macro environment changes And just at a high level venture capital
1: as an asset class has, has ballooned significantly and gotten larger and larger to the degree where i think you would say that pre-seed is completely different than than late stage are they the same asset class do you want to have some kind of diversification within the different stages how do you look at that as a whole
0: I think it's really important to have diversification because you can we can see a scenario where you invest in a early stage manager that just focuses on tech, and then Nasdaq sells off and it impacts everything. I, I put them all kind of in the illiquid bucket, so I don't necessarily differentiate. You know, a manager that writes you know uh, safes or seed investments versus somebody who's Series A or Series B. Yes, there's a different return expectation, but from an asset allocation st- standpoint, they're still 10-year allocations. So, you know, I kind of think of them similarly, but have different expectations based upon their strategy. So you mentioned having a deep
1: bench for your managers and kind of next one up. What do you look for in your bench and what are you looking for in the next generation of, of managers in the venture capital
0: space? One area that you know, not just for venture capital, but but as a sector, is is healthcare. Something we're really, really bullish on, and and I, I think there's a lot of uh, alpha there. One thing that I think is is really, really interesting is that if you look at kind of the technicals of the industry, if you compare the uh, S and P two year performance to the XBI over the last uh, you know rolling twelve months, rolling five five years, rolling two years, the S and is flat. Rolling two years, the XBI is down over forty, which is a huge, huge delta. If you just back out the the biotech stocks from the S and P, so in our view, from like a technical perspective, that sector of the market has sold off more aggressively and sooner than the broader market. And from an opportunity standpoint, that's where I'm really excited about. And I think one thing that's that's interesting is that you know people tend to think of technology as being synonymous for like software or cloud computing. But technology is technology, there's, there's a lot of aspects to it. And particularly in, in biotech, the forefront of science breakthroughs, you know, things like gene um, editing and, and uh, liquid biopsies, you know, think of weight loss drugs that we view potentially could have a kind of a trillion dollar market cap in the future those are some of the things we're we're really excited about. And from an asset allocation standpoint, and, and just from the perspective of being able to capture as much of the alpha as possible, you know, we take the view that it's important to have both venture, early stage, late stage, and public exposure in our kind of healthcare sector, and make sure that we're we're in the best position to capitalize on, on forward-looking trends. In terms of biotech
1: venture, where are the opportunities set? Where's the alpha in the market as you see it today? Where are you pointing your portfolio?
0: Yeah, we're really, really excited about the opportunities in healthcare. One thing I like to talk about is kind of spatial biology was really interesting. It's a new kind of technology where they're using kind of AI to physically map in a 3D way how these drugs interact, like not just uh, cells, but within the cell, how different parts of the cell are are, are interacting. That's Unlimited commercial applications for something like that. Another kind of uh, tidbit I like to mention is that you know the the Human Genome Project was approximately twenty years ago and cost approximately three billion dollars. Now the cost to map one genome has gone from hundreds of thousands of dollars to approximately a hundred dollars. And you know the the commercial applications of that are, are really kind of the tip of the iceberg in terms of um, what's next. I think that the space. It it's it's definitely had its challenges over the last, you know, year or two. But if you have the patience, if you have an appropriate time horizon and appropriate risk tolerance, it's really impressive place to be. And and actually talking about venture capital and biotech, if you look at the last five years, there were a lot of, you know, really early stage companies that maybe were pushed to go public earlier than than they should have. So it's created a really interesting dynamic where there's, there's kind of a lot of binary investment opportunities that I think is perfectly primed for active management. VC's two favorite words are power laws. It's generally
1: seen as in t- general technology, but I think biotech, given the, as you mentioned, binary outcomes. And the massive TAMs, we've taken a look at some biotech companies, they're $3 trillion TAM and you say, that sounds like a ludicrous number, and then you just do the math and it's just a math equation. Let's move on to advice for general partners. Specifically, we have a lot of emerging managers. What are some uh, points of advice that you would give emerging managers on how to better themselves?
0: Honestly, being kind of transparent is probably the the best piece of advice I can give. You know, there's this kind of diligence of aspect to, you know, they're they're trying to put on their best face and you know, obviously win the business. And, you know, your job is to understand and really make sure that you have a good appreciation for what's going on behind the covers. And I think that from an LP's perspective, you know, having these conversations over and over again, you tend to hear a lot of the same things over and over again. And and some of these managers maybe not as unique as they think they are. It's helpful from an LP perspective to be able to say, "Hey, this is what we do. This is how we do it. Yes, we could do these things differently from like a best practice perspective. Things like independent administrator, independent valuation, auditors having you know all these kind of Controls in place that investors appreciate. The other thing is be open to being scrutinized. I think one big difference between typical kind of smaller venture manager and smaller kind of public manager is that most public equity managers are expect to be scrutinized, and they 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 welcome it to a certain extent. Where I think the venture capital industry still has to get over this this lack of transparency, and more recently the the, the private funds announcement from the SEC is going to go a long way towards that in terms of forcing folks to be a little bit more transparent about their fees be a little bit more transparent about their fair value um, portfolio holdings I think we're moving in the right direction but in terms of advice I would say that realize that you know obviously they're vetting you but but ultimately you know it's a partnership and you know we want you to succeed and and it's in our best interest that you know, you do the right thing. So you know, kind of view us as a resource and make it as uh n- non-contentious as possible.
1: Yeah, I had a, an odd thing happen in the last couple of years. Uh, one of my funds was oversubscribed. I was basically vetting. I was trying to get the LP. I was telling them everything. I took them through case studies of when I lost money, and of course, the LP was like, "How could I subscribe?" And I, I could feel that it was it was this uh, style of selling, essentially. Uh,
0: unintentionally that was very effective just the hyper transparency how do you look at that i have this uh, running joke in the office that the, the best way to raise money is to tell people you're not taking money it, it works right like when when you are aggressively fundraising and maybe desperate's not the right word but it does come off there's a, a certain fomo aspect to a manager where you know that they're going to be oversubscribed and you know you may not get capacity there's power in that as an lp these types of conversations sometimes are, are easy, but sometimes they're not, right? You want to understand, hey, you know, give me an example of something that didn't work out or or, or a losing trade. And, and you want to understand, you know, kind of a postmortem perspective, you know, what they did wrong, what they learned from. Maybe more importantly than the money lost is you want to understand the thought process. You want to understand what they did then and potentially how they would do something differently. Because one thing that's been drilled into me for the last you know, 20 years is that past performance is not indicative of future results. And while that's true, it, it does de-risk the investment somewhat.
1: Has it been in your experience that top LPs are comfortable with losing money in the correct way where more mediocre LPs are really focused on downside protection versus really making sure
0: you get good returns in venture? Yeah, I think that's fair. I do think that, you know, obviously, sophisticated LPs understand market dynamics a little bit better. You know, things like the last 18 months in venture down rounds and, and what's been happening in the industry broadly. There may be a you know high net worth or somebody who's kind of, you know, less exposed to the market who just expects kind of an absolute return profile. But if you're not in the weeds and not seeing what's going on in the broader market, you, you may miss that. So I, I, I do think, you know, going back to um, uh, liquidity and, and capacity, it's an interesting conversation because there have been multiple times where I've spoken to managers who intentionally make their liquidity more onerous than it needs to be. Like, for example, like an equity manager who could do weekly liquidity but chooses to do semi-annual. And it makes you wonder why, and really, what they're doing is they're protecting the fund from their investors. And there's obviously an aspect to that in venture, but you know in venture you you understand like hey, you know you're you're putting your money on a boat, you're pushing it out to sea, and you're hoping at some point the boat comes back bigger. One of my favorite tweets in VC is VC is ninety nine percent saying no
1: and one percent begging especially the case in the last bull market. And you saw rounds go from 60 days to 60 hours in terms of closing. And it created this pressure that a lot of VCs don't want to talk about, which is this pressure to be overly founder friendly. I'm, of course, a two-time founder myself. I value founder friendliness probably more than most VCs, but you have to say, you know, I still have to do my diligence. How do you balance your reputation
0: as an LP with your need to be diligent and to be a good fiduciary for your clients? I mean, I would argue that my reputation as an LP is in my diligence. So the fact that they know I'm going to be a pain in the ass is kind of the reputation I want, to be honest. And uh, I think they appreciate that. And just kind of as evidence of that, I've been asked to be a reference for multiple head managers because when I speak to another LP and I say, hey, I didn't love this. This is what they did. This is how they answer these questions. I, I try to take a friendly approach as possible, but they recognize that, we're not pushovers. We have the benefit of, you know, having best-in-class terms almost everywhere we go. So, like that is our expectation, generally speaking, for most relationships. And we're additive LPs, and and we, we do believe that a relationship with us is is going to add value to them as well. And you're talking uh, best-in-class in terms of MFN. That's going to be a little bit more difficult going forward, right? MFNs are going to be a little bit challenged and not allowed going forward. But I I, I do think that there are certain things that institutional investors have grown accustomed to. You know, not from an MFN perspective, but maybe in terms of access and, and relationships and, you know, just kind of softer, more subtle type data points. And you know, you can you can make the argument that like that's really where kind of the the nuance is where the secret sauce is like being able to decipher and differentiate one investment versus another. That's where ultimately the 30 years of experience of doing this as a firm that is where I think ultimately the value is and what our investors, our uh, expect of us.
1: We have a lawyer coming on soon uh, to unpack the new SEC guidelines. Have you had a chance to take a look at them and any thoughts on how, without giving legal advice, how that might
0: change the industry at a high level? we clear, I'm not a lawyer and not in a position to, to comment legally, but just reviewing uh, the bullet points, it seems as though they backtracked on the big kind of negligence Difference, which I think had a lot of people worried in terms of, you know, legal liability. So that was probably a, a positive walk back. The changes to kind of transparency and fees and, you know, kind of administrator standard, which, you know, I would argue everyone should be on an administrator, but not every VC fund is. Um, I think those are all positive. You know, like that the expense piece it, it specifically is something that I for years I've had an issue with and a lot of you know uncomfortable conversations that I've had with managers. Um, so, like the fact that the U.S. now is kind of you know on the right page, and the Europeans have been a little bit far ahead of this. Um, I think it's a good thing for the industry.
1: Mention expenses. Uh, one LP told me that LPs love to gossip and and complain, for lack of a better word. Uh, but another funny thing that he told me is that a lot of LPs will complain about funds and continue to invest because of the performance what are your views on that do you have to take a dogmatic view and say hey you know this guy is expensing his private jet even though he's returning 5x i'm not going to invest how do you navigate that and how do you how do you kind of socialize this with with your own
0: clients it's an interesting conversation and i've definitely some debates i've had around this and you know i think the kind of the best example is you know SAC where they had in maybe one of the best track records that you've seen but also a really onerous fee structure. And I don't think any of their investors complained about it, right? Because net-net, they, they were better off. It's something that I don't really think about a whole lot in terms of right and wrong aspect to it. I think of it in terms of run rate, right? So this is the manager's you know, management fee, performance fee. Here's the run rate. So here's everything we're paying above that. And is it commensurate with our expectations, particularly with the asset? class in the strategy, right? So like for example, your your multi-managers, your, you know, your millenniums, 0.72s, citadels, they're kind of in one bucket and they work a certain way. But if a long short equity or a venture manager had a fee structure similar to them, I'd have an issue with that. Right. So I think like this is where the experience comes in. You you should as an investor, you should be mindful that some strategies are inherently more expensive to run. Like for example, activist strategies, right? Like your you know, Bill Ackman's of the world who are, you know, taking public views against companies and proxy battles. These are super expensive, like legal bills. So, you know, someone like that may have a massive legal bill that another firm wouldn't. So I think, yes, there's there's definitely a lot of shadiness, if you will, within expenses. And that's part of my job to to assess that and make sure that they're not doing anything like that's, that's improper. But You know, you're right. There are things that managers may pass through that, you know, if they're annualizing at 20 versus 10, (laughs) may have a little bit more leeway for it. How much more stomachable uh, are the quote unquote fees
1: when they're as carry? I I had Samir Kaji and and Apoorva and I just spoke to Michael. At Sandana Capital, Michael Kim, uh, and they state that half to two thirds of their managers are doing kind of tiered carry structures over certain hurdles, like a three x and a five x. How do you look at that in the venture capital space?
0: I do think terms are trending towards more investor friendly, and they'll continue to do that, particularly in this fundraising environment. Unless you're one of a handful of firms, you're facing fee pressure. I think, like philosophically, the carry. Piece is more investor friendly than the two and twenty like traditional piece because you know you're you're, you're not paying a fee and losing money right like you've de-risked that aspect to it such that you're only paying a carry after you've seen a profit and that that is you know a little bit more difficult in other markets uh, the way we think about it is you know I, at the end of the day it's it's a net cost right so if you if you can stomach the fees, and they're not doing anything crazy, and and it's kind of well within expectation of reasonableness, we, we deal with it.
1: Thank you for your transparency. And thank you for answering these hardball questions. I want to give you a chance to share what, what you'd like our listeners to know uh, about yourself, about Optima. You're working on a lot of interesting projects. So anything you'd like our, our listeners to know about Optima?
0: Yeah, we we mentioned uh, the healthcare strategy. That's something we're really bullish on, and and can continue to do a lot of work on. The other thing that I think is is interesting to me specifically as an investor is that I think a few years ago we launched the star program where we we kind of did some analysis and, and realized that you know if you think of investment managers and particularly like the best of the best, the folks that have annualized at the highest numbers over the last twenty years, even those folks their alpha tends to be at the top of the portfolio, meaning the top you know, three to five names. So we ran an analysis where we backed out the performance of the top three to five names and compared that performance with the actual performance we received as investors. And the numbers were quite compelling such that something like 75% of the time, the track record that was the concentrated portfolio that was purely their best ideas outperformed the actual commercial product that they were in market selling. We took that analysis and built an algorithm around it, and we call it the Star Program. And it, it was really interesting where we took our history of allocating to managers and figured out who was good at what, and built a portfolio around the best ideas of the best folks in each space. That is something we we launched and and uh, really bullish on it, and, and uh, look forward to continuing to expand that program. It's the implicit uh,
1: assumption there is that every manager only has a few. Good ideas, but is that essentially the
0: assumption in the star program? The assumption is that the folks that are in the best position in each individual strategy, just by by human nature, they're going to make their highest conviction ideas at the top of their portfolio, right? Unlike venture, where names grow against your will, <laughs> you know these you can you can size up and size down at at will. If you have a position that's a ten percent of your portfolio, you better believe in it. The answer really is kind of top. Three to five names are where the alpha is. If you look at statistics and, and a large data set, that's typically where it is. So that's what we did. We backed out the top three to five names of really impressive track record hedge funds and built a you know forty to fifty stock portfolio directly on those names. And, and that's that's effectively what it is. And you know I, I'm really really uh, bullish on it.
1: Thank you very much. We got to take a look at the venture world and the larger asset management world through the lens of risk and through somebody that's really had really rich experience across different asset classes. So this is uh, invaluable for, for myself and for the audience. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Limited Partner Podcast. If you like this conversation, please like,
0: subscribe, and review on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple. Thank you for your support.